Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode of Founders Talk is brought to you by Hired. One thing people hate doing is searching for a new job. It's so painful to search through open positions on every job board under the sun. The process to find a new job is such a mess. If only there was an easier way. Well, I'm here to tell you there is. Our friends at Hired have made it so the companies send you offers with salary, benefits, and even equity up front. All you have to do is answer a few questions to showcase who you are and what type of job you're looking for. They work with more than 6,000 companies from startups to large publicly traded companies in 14 major tech hubs in North America and Europe. You get to see all of your interview requests. You can accept, reject, or make changes to their offer even before you talk with anyone. And it's totally free. This isn't going to cost you anything. It's not like you have to go there and spend money to get this opportunity. And if you get a job through Hired, they're even going to give you a bonus. Normally it's $300, but because you're a listener of Founders Talk, they're going to give you $600 instead. Even if you're not looking for a job, you can refer a friend and Hired will send you a check for $1,337 when they accept the job. As you can see, Hired makes it too easy. Get started at Hired.com slash Founders Talk. Welcome to Founders Talk. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog and host of this podcast. On this show, we talk with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, the lessons learned, and the behind the scenes of their companies. On today's show, I'm talking with Daniel Morrill, the founder and CEO of Mattermark, which was recently acquired by Full Contact. So I'm a huge fan of yours. Uh, been we kind of have a history going back to early days, I suppose. Twilio days, 2008-ish, 2009-ish. I don't know what what year it was, but a long time. So I've kind of been a fan of yours. Uh, carefully watching your moves in the internet and different things you're doing. I've always been a huge fan of yours. I'm just kind of curious where you're at in life right now. Yeah, well, thank you for being a fan. I think we did a podcast together about Twilio. Gotta be like nearly 10 years now. Yeah. Um, so where I'm at right now, so I sold Mattermark, my um, most recent startup that I founded um, in December of 2017 and moved to Denver um, where the acquiring company's based and um, just wrapped up my transition uh, there. And so I'm kind of in an interesting place right now where I don't have a active project and depending on who I'm talking to, I'll say, you know, either I'm unemployed or maybe we would call it sabbatical well, whatever you want to call it, but I'm sort of in this interesting in-between place. How is that different from like day-to-day for you? Do, you? do you just not take care of yourself? Do you not get enough sleep? Do you not exercise? Like how, how does, what does fun employment, how does sabbatical work out for you? Yeah. I mean, I'm still figuring that out to be totally honest. Um, I definitely am getting more sleep. I think the last you know, 18 months or so, as we were gearing up to sell the company, I started to focus more on self-care. So fortunately, um, some of those things are a little more in check, but definitely I have more time right now for reading um, spending a lot more time with my dog, just like taking care of life stuff, mm-hmm. you know, stuff you don't do, like go to the dentist or whatever. Um, just cause like life gets in the way. Um, I kind of have this backlog list that I always keep of, of prioritized life stuff. And right now I'm actually trying to get through like a very significant chunk of that backlog. And that's sort of how I'm, uh, structuring my days. And then also, you know, a significant amount of unstructured time, just like, Hey, I can sit and read all day if I want to. 
Uh, and that's also been amazing. So I'm only four weeks in. So that's what I figured out so far. So this is a, a sabbatical. You're calling it a sabbatical? Yeah. I mean, I don't really know what to call it. Like it's a, it's a weird thing, I guess. I mean, I'm 33, so I don't really know like when that's an appropriate thing to say. And I'm not like a professor, but I mean, I don't know what else to call it. I'm not planning to work the rest of 2018. Wow. There you go. I, I've actually taken a sabbatical myself. It was three months and I was between, I was just in a, in a interesting position in my life. I didn't have a ton of responsibilities, although I had a, I had uh, enough money in the bank to take a, take a break from things. And if I didn't take that three months, I just thought about it now in this conversation with you, I, in retrospect, I'm not sure if I didn't do that, if I would be here today and I'm not like alive on the, on the earth, but like, in Doing this, this moment, you know, yeah, because that yeah. that sabbatical provided me enough time to recharge myself, find out who I was, uh, focus on health, focus on relationships, focus on healthy things that rebuilt who I thought I was, and and find mm-hmm. out who I was in, in some cases. So that's awesome. I'm so glad you did that. Is that is that kind of the same for you right now? I mean, and you're four weeks in, but you know, maybe that's your, yeah. your perspective. Well, I think that identity piece is definitely in there, sort of into the sense of like, what do I want to spend my time on. I'm not planning to never work again, obviously. So, um, there's a lot of things going on. So I've pretty much worked, I've worked on startups for 13 years. And then before that I had briefly for like three years, a fortune 500 gig, but I didn't go to college. So I think I spent a lot of time feeling like if I stop working at any point, they're going to figure out that I'm like not legit. And it's going to be really hard for me to be employable again. And I realized that's probably ridiculous at a certain point that's completely disconnected from the reality of my skills and, and self-worth and all of that. But I think this is the first point where my, my reality of how I see myself and my actual situation line up. So I feel like I'm not afraid that I can't get back into something cool, whether it's starting a company or a, or a gig. Um, and I just took no time off between things. And so I've just been really running uh, pretty hard for probably too long. So yeah, I think it's like recovering from that and, and figuring out what I want to do next, whether that's starting a company or maybe something totally different. I can relate to that too, because I myself did not go to college. Uh, I've been kicking butt for, I'm not sure if it's 13 years, but definitely a, a while, a long time. I've been, you know, going from one thing to another, never really a serious break other than the three month sabbatical that I mentioned. Uh, yeah. That's the only time I've ever really, and I don't even think I was long enough. I think I should have been longer. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed that time. And my, now my wife at the time, my girlfriend, she's like, you, you tricked me. You, cause I met her when I was on my sabbatical <laughs> and she, I had all the time in the world. I was very chill. Didn't have a lot of things. Yeah, whatever. Really blase about anything. Like, yeah, let's do it. Come on, let's go. Let's go to dinner, whatever. And, you know, obviously when you get back into the swing of things, you gotta be more regimented. So she's like, you mm-hmm. tricked me. You tricked me. But anyways, <laughs> I can, I can relate to that because imposter syndrome creeps in all of us. We have it at every second of the day. We never think that we're, we're always to some degree winging it, right? Even if we're like the Mm -hmm. most knowledgeable person in the room, we're still like, I have no idea. I think this should work. Maybe it works. Oh, it worked. Great. And we sort of get by and I kind of feel like, yeah, I feel like somebody is going to creep up on me one day and, and realize that I'm not, I never went to school. I don't know anything. And I don't, I'm just not that smart. I don't know. They're going to find out somehow I'm, I'm just not worth it. And then on some level, you know, like, no, actually look at all that I've done and what I've created. You, you can look your, at your, your business, which has progressed so much since the first time we talked. Um, and it's like, Oh wait, I did that. So it's like both things can be true at the same time. Right. right. Isn't that, isn't that weird? I think it's very weird. It's very weird. 
uh, I think that's the struggle of being an entrepreneur. I never really, uh, this show is not about me, but I'm going to share a, a short version of this because you oh, might identify us as well. I, I never thought I'd be an entrepreneur. I, I just sort of stumbled into it. One day I realized I was kind of good at helping people. And that turned into just like being the person who should lead to make the thing, the thing so that other people can gather around and do the same thing and, you know, make progress in life and help people and, and serve value to people and stuff. So I, I just sort of like fell into mm-hmm. entrepreneurism. And I think that at some point you just sort of like, you're just like, how did I get here? How am I that person leading? And there you are. I think it happens all the time. I mean, I think even if we hadn't been entrepreneurs, we might've felt that way about our careers at some point, just because I think it's, it's like, it happens as this slow progression. Mm-hmm. But, you know, all those decisions that we're making, they add up to something over time. And I think I've been reflecting a lot on just, you know, time passing and how it's really an accumulation of choices. So, you know, before I set off on this next path, whatever it is, it's like, okay, what kind of choices do I want to be responsible for is a big question I've been asking myself. One thing I've been really enjoying is actually not having customers. To your point about helping people, it's like, that is a wonderful thing. And that's obviously one of the most important things that you think about when you're building a startup, probably another big one is employees. And the minute that I'm free of that, it's like, Oh wow, that was actually quite a responsibility. Yeah. And it's really important. And so I think there's something really powerful about, um, you know, we fell into it. Right. So it's like, you don't even think, Oh man, now I have customers. Who do I want my customers to be? And then there are these moments to pause and, and reflect on that. So that's been something I've been contemplating a lot. I like what you said there about, uh, about time. You know, and, and it's a, I think you said it's a reflection of choices or a summary of choices. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you're in a position now to make more deliberate choices, right? Like every choice is deliberate to some degree, of course. But like now you have time to pause and truly examine, like, is this next step a wise move for me, for my health, for my future, the direction I actually want to go for happiness? How do you answer that question every day? Right now, it's pretty weird. Um, I have this backlog of life things that I want to do and and I use it to help me deal with guilt. So it's like, if I um, feel like I should be productive and I'm putting up little quote, quote marks with my fingers here, productive, then I pick a few things off that list to do so that at the end of the day, I can kind of ask myself, what did I achieve today? And there's something on that list. Mm -hmm. I feel like part of the meditation of what I'm going through right now is actually letting go of that a little bit more. Um, And it's a gradual process. So I'm, you know, I've been functioning as a startup executive for most of the time that I've been doing startups. I think like maybe 10 of the 13 years or something. So like, you know, your life is regimented, like you said before. Um, So I'm having a really hard time becoming unregimented. That's almost like the challenge that I'm facing is like, how do I not live and die by the calendar? How do I not get up at 630 and check the stock market? Like there's just all these things that I do that I don't need to do them anymore. They're not, they're like, vestiges of a previous lifestyle um so yeah right now it's actually about like slowly deprogramming that a little bit i guess the question is 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 uh part of the journey i'm sure but uh will you go back to that lifestyle is that something that actually makes you happy i don't think it's an issue of of happy or not happy i think it's an issue of of goals so it's like does it serve the goals that i'm going to be setting because i think that that lifestyle to some extent was was quite successful for me um, and those choices were, you know, made things like getting up early or living and dying by the calendar were just necessary for my context. So I think the important question is kind of, you know, what do I want to be doing day to day? Let's assume I start another startup or take a job or whatever I decide to do. 
um, what's my day to day going to look like? And then how do I craft a cadence of life around that, that like, it isn't just holdovers, like memories from previous lifestyles. Um, and so that's, I think why the deprogramming is so important to get back to almost like a bit more of a blank canvas to design a life. Like, I don't really think that I would say all those things are necessarily bad. They just accumulate into a lot of responsibility. Um, and if I keep carrying that around on top of whatever else I decide to do, it's really, it's kind of limiting. Mm -hmm. So like, if you think about if I continue to live the lifestyle I've been living as a startup founder, then the most likely thing I'll do is become a startup founder again, because it would be easy to slot that into the design of that cadence of life. But if I can really clear the canvas, then like then it, that opens up a much broader set of possibilities. Cause you don't think of yourself as a painter. If you check the stock market at eight 30 in the morning, like mm. there's just storyline stuff that gets messed up there that like kind of, you don't might not mean to, but I think it would cause me to maybe limit the possibilities that I would consider. So I'm trying to open up the aperture as wide as I can. Using a photography reference. I like that. So that means that you're, you're letting <laughs> all the light in. Yeah. Full on bokeh, shallow depth of field, total focus. Yeah. It's really, really interesting what you notice when you uh, can like widen that perspective. Yeah. New things that were there that you weren't maybe not paying attention to. What matters to you? Yeah. I mean, my health is a really big one. Um, I, I think I gained 50 pounds in total since I started working on startups. Now part of that's just getting older and that's fine. Like going from being in my early twenties to early thirties, but part of it's not fine. Like probably 10, 20 of those pounds are, are reasonable and the rest it's like, okay, really, I probably don't need to be eating such crap. Um, so you know, that's sort of a thing. Cause I feel like that's sort of the foundation that everything rests on. So part of that is like appearance and part of that is actual physical health and it's all kind of tied together. Um, so that's a big one. And just like something I didn't prioritize. My family's a big priority. My sister just had a baby. I'm, so it's my fourth time over. I don't have any kids, uh, but I'm an aunt four times nice. and not planning to have kids. So it's like really important to me to spend time with my sister and with that baby and, and kind of just re-engage with my family. That's actually been a big thing I've been doing the past four weeks is pretty much seeing everybody. Um, so that's a big one. And just, you know, that sense of not, you know, you know, you're going to have regrets. Like life is about choices. And that means there's always something else on everything you say yes to. There's something else you're probably saying no to. But I think um, there's a little bit of like risk reduction or, or regret mitigation that I can do right now. That very small, simple things, just like seeing people I care about and making sure my priorities are, uh, you know, maybe a little more long term focused. That's so that's kind of what I'm thinking about right now is like, hey, what are the things I put off where like, if I don't change that soon, I'm actually going to miss out on something permanently. And I'm finding those, there's a lot of things like that that are fairly easy to, to turn around if you just put the focus on, on them. And that's what I mean, I guess, with the wider aperture. You're like, oh, wow, I haven't, I haven't gone to Seattle in like a year. Wow. How did a year go by? Things like that. Right. Yeah. You, you start to reflect and I'm a huge, huge fan of retrospectives. Like I, I, that's one of the reasons why I fell in love with Agile and Scrum and the whole methodologies of software development is they play out in life too. I really enjoyed the process of like getting to the end of a sprint and I enjoyed the demo and delivering, but I so much enjoyed the reflection with the team mm -hmm. even more because it's like, you can be human, you can talk, you can commune and you can discuss like where things went right, where things went wrong, what you would do differently and all that stuff. And I think that that's sort of to do a self-reflection in that case. It, you know, I'm mm -hmm. a huge fan of doing those things because it's such positive dividends you know, to, to play off from that. Cause if you don't look back at what you've been doing, you're just going to keep making the same mistakes or never really understand why you did in the first place. 
you know, and I, I totally just repeat agree. it. Yeah. And I think even beyond that, I think it's, it's partly about mistakes. That's also about not seeing all the possibilities for the narrative that you have. So I think it's easy to just stay kind of on a narrative line that makes sense. Like I can see that it would be very plausible for me to announce that I'm becoming a VC of some big firm. That's sort of like the next plausible, one of the really obvious next things that could happen, right? And I think that it's very easy to just say, well, that's so plausible that when that opportunity comes along, I'm just going to take it. Mm. And I think the reflection causes you to say, well, what else might not be so plausible to other people? But for me, when I actually look at it, it's a really great opportunity, a great idea. And I feel like I was sort of in that space when I joined Twilio, I was sort of in that space mentally when I started Referly, which became Mattermark. Um, and so part of it is like to create things, whether it's your life story or companies, I think you have to not just play out the narrative other people are expecting from you. Cause it's obviously really hard to stick to a narrative that you don't really feel is your own. So it's not, it's like about mistakes and it's also about, which is looking backwards, but it's also like looking at all the future possibilities and maybe like trying to predict which versions of that future you might be happiest with if you if you pursued them. You kind of get caught in a bunch of yeses sometimes because you just feel yeah. propelled to say yes because like, hey, yeah, yeah. like you said, it's plausible. So Especially yeah. if they're great opportunities, right? Like yeah. If I offer you, you know, a, a GP seat at one of the top 10 VC firms with great returns and so much prestige and all that, like if that happened, I think it would be very hard to say no Yeah. because it's very, I mean, so many things going on. But the question is, why are you saying yes? Like you're about to say yes to something that's another Tenure commitment, you know. I'm next time I come out of whatever I do, I'll probably be 44. So I feel like it's really important to think about those chunks of time in this really intentional way that I probably, honestly, was not that intentional in my 20s and got really lucky, worked with amazing people, and all these good things happened. But I think that intentionality is really important. I like how you said, "Why are you saying yes?" I think people don't often examine their yeses as much as they examine their noes. <laughs> I know? totally agree. Oh my gosh, you're so right. I mean, I've said yes so many times that things I'm like, why did I say yes to this again? Like here, here you are in your yes, doing your yes and delivering and executing and whether it's, you know, you know, private and personal or it's, you know, professional and work related or whatever, you know, you, you get into the middle of it and you're like, uh, this is a silly. Yes. Why did I do this? And you have mm -hmm. regret and you're like, geez, I missed that opportunity because you didn't scrutinize it well enough or you can also over question things too. So let's not, let's it's not tricky. As a this is actually one reason I'm really happy that I'm not in the Bay area right now. Um, and I love the Bay area. Like I didn't, wasn't like, Oh, screw the Bay area. I'm leaving. I don't feel that way at all. I love San Francisco. I lived there for 10 years. I'm missing it every day, but the amount of opportunity that's presented that's every day is so much. And it's actually kind of great for me to not be there because I don't have to say no constantly. I just am like a little bit, harder to reach. And so like certain things make it through the filter and but a lot of stuff just doesn't. And, um, I think that, you know, you kind of go through fatigue, decision fatigue, uh, in an environment like that of, you know, saying yes, saying no. And by the way, like I was a CEO, right. So I was kind of professionally saying no all the time. Cause there's just like, there's not enough resources to do everything. You can't give everybody what they want. Um, and it's like kind of actually nice to scope my life down into a size where I can actually say yes without ending up overcommitted, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, since you mentioned Mattermark before, just a few minutes ago and being a CEO, let's talk about, I would say the part I like to focus on maybe is the 18 months since you mentioned that earlier too. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm also learning about your story as we talk through it. So it's sort of like, you know, real time discovery, but you mentioned 
there was an 18 months uh, stint there where you were, you know, working to sell. So you must have recognized at some point that you needed to. Can you talk a bit about, you know, maybe that time and sort of give me and the rest of the audience a frame of reference to, to key off of? Yeah, absolutely. So let's see, we're in, we're in May now or with the end of May. Um, so, and the company was sold officially December 22nd was the close date. So we closed just before the calendar year ended. Um, so I guess the 18 months includes like the six months of transition time. But um, if you look at the beginning of 2017, that's kind of where we kind of reached a point of making some decisions. Uh, the company was struggling. We had began to expand beyond our initial market. So our initial market was focused on private investors. And we had taken a go-to-market strategy that was going to bring the company into sales and marketing and make it so people could identify and qualify leads. And we were selling about, you know, let's say roughly 40, 50% of our revenue was in that bucket, but it was um, growing very fast and just churning very fast. So we didn't have product market fit there and we were trying a lot of different things. We had a lot of indicators that it could be lucrative, but we started to run out of time. We had like successively missed, I think it was maybe our fourth or fifth quarter. So we had a board meeting and, um, you know, it's just difficult when you're missing quarters. You're usually also turning over senior executives. You're trying out different things. Um, and our board is amazing and, and super supportive. But it was sort of like, okay, well, we're at this place now where like, we're, we're flirting with um, not being financeable at this point. And we still have money left. So we need to make some choices. And I don't know if I have the timeline quite right, but we didn't make the decision in that meeting to sell. Kevin and I went off on uh, vacation with his family we went to Hawaii, I think, for, in like February. And we did this really difficult hike and it just caused us to be alone together for a really long time and just kind of cut off from our phones and just cut off from everybody. And it was it was great. And it was so beautiful. And we were sitting on the beach and just talking about, you know, what would it be like if we sold the company? Like the first time we really, my, Kevin's my husband and my co-founder. And it was like, what would this really feel like? You know, are we really emotionally prepared to do it or like not do it or what would it do to the marriage and just all these questions and it was just this great exploratory conversation um which really i think culminated in coming back from that trip and being like okay well if we did do this like we can we can see a future on the other side which i think we just never had really truly contemplated like selling was a very abstract thing so we got back and we had a board meeting i think in um early March. And that's when we kind of presented to the board, like, Hey, this is kind of how we see the business. We don't really, we won't really want to ask to take more money at the same valuation as before. We'd be signing up for, you know, two to four more years of grinding just to get another round of financing, still not, you know, necessarily be that big of a business. We think we should find a buyer and just got a lot of support there and, and kicked off a process. So, um, and I can talk more about the process of course, but I think it's really important just to pause on the, on the, first part, which is the making the decision. Cause I think there's, there's the abstract idea of like, Hey, I should sell the company now cause I can't raise more money. But I think for me, another big part was just actually being able to visualize life as not the CEO mm. of Mattermark, yeah. which was really different and at first really scary, but then slowly became kind of compelling too. It was like, Oh, I could like sleep when I could um, not, you know, have to run HR and, and you know, all these things like I just never really, consider that I could set those burdens down. So I'll pause there. I know that was a bit of a long answer. No, I think that's a good place to pause too, because I'm, I, again, I'm still learning the story, but it sounds like you put a lot of effort into creating matter market. It was recurly as a, a passion project and, in, in, you know, lots of ways that 
pivoted or not pivoted based on uh, just kind of died. <laughs> well, you know, we you put a lot it. of work into it. And so like to sell it and not, it's sort of like saying, I don't, would you consider it admitting failure to sell? Or what, what does that mean to you? I mean, the company was sold as a revenue generating business, it's, you know, generating revenue for its acquirer now. So that's great. And the product's still alive and customers still use it. So I think those things are successes. I think you didn't know that was going to be true though. You, you, did I mean, you know I negotiated the deal to yeah. do I mean, I negotiated the deal. So yeah, no, I mean, I chose some things and I was fortunate enough to have built enough of a business where those were viable options. Um, I think it's admitting an ending. I think if it, if you want to call it a failure, that's totally fine. I think it's... Um, no, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not to the trying end, to label you know, it as funny. a failure. I'm trying oh, to figure out how you... The thing you, is, it doesn't matter. Yeah. At the end, like, you're just so happy to be done. You're just like, it's just an ending and like and some sense of punctuation. Yeah. Um, that's how I would really, I would say, like, it gave it a proper burial a proper kind of transition um yeah i think it's also what i would really say and i think a lot of companies get into the kind of situation Mattermark is in is it was just an acknowledgement of reality like you can keep doing things to kind of artificially keep these companies alive like there were other options we could have taken and some people might say that that's what you're supposed to do i think we kind of came to a decision point of like okay what's the roi going to be on some of those other things and like the roi was was pretty bad for for the founders. Pretty bad for the em- most of the employees at that point had been let go, and like the odds it was going to get something better for the investors were very low versus the amount of years of time that you know that I, me, or my co-founders would be giving. So I think it's just sort of like a proper acknowledgement of reality with all the facts that you can fo- you can possibly know, knowing you can't you know obviously predict the future or know everything, and then taking action from there to create some kind of endpoint. Um, and so, you know, investors have stock from the company that acquired us. And I think there's a very good chance that that company is going to be very, very, very large. And so I hope very much that, you know, that it's going to take a very long time, but ultimately investors have a good chance of recouping and maybe even making a a profit off of the investment, you know, on a time horizon, that's probably much longer than they wanted, um, which is better than zero. And that's basically what it comes down to is like, you kind of have an order of who you owe. And I think, I think we did our best to kind of satisfy that kind of order of operations, if that makes sense. That's interesting to, to frame it. I mean, it's the truth, but to frame it as an order of who you owe, because yeah. you know, when you get to a, we talked earlier about the layers of responsibility, right? You mentioned HR, you mentioned some things that like, oh, I wouldn't have to do this. Like, you know, those are all things that sort of like just weigh on you and mm-hmm. you end up owing people. You know, and whether you actually have debt to them or not, it's some sort of thing like, hey, I owe you at least an explanation or actual money because you're an investor or and I'm sorry because you're an employee and things didn't turn out the way we had anticipated and we have to go this road. This episode of Founders Talk is brought to you by Rollbar. Catch errors before your users do. Resolve errors in minutes. Deploy with confidence. Rollbar is loved by developers, trusted by enterprises. And most of all, we use Rollbar here at ChangeLog. You can give Rollbar a try today at no cost to you. No credit card is required. Our listeners get access to the Bootstrap plan with 100,000 events for free for 90 days. To get started, head to rollbar.com changelog.
do you feel like you personally handled that that transition? Like we talked kind of in the pre-call about change. You know, we, I even referenced the book, Who, Who Moved My Cheese, which is one of my favorite books in the world. But I think everybody should read that book. But how do you how did you deal with change at that point? Personally, I feel like I had to come to terms with the fact that I was going to go from as the sole founder of the company, having more stock than anybody else and having that go to zero. And that was a pretty big psychological thing. Like I knew it was paper money. So it was never like, oh, this, you know, the company's valued at like whatever, $42 million and I own a quarter of the company or whatever. I think it was more than that. So on paper, I have you know this much money. I never actually let myself think about that that way. But I, I did think of it as being worth something. And so for having it go from something to nothing, because the common stock was wiped out and the deal for me was something I was like, in order for me to do a good job for everybody else, I'm going to need to just kind of let this go and, and like grieve this. And I knew very early as we started to look at term sheets that like that was probably the scenario in most of these things. And like the best I could hope for was going to be a good job offer with some stock options and stuff like that. So, um, I think that was sort of, in a weird way, level one. And it's funny because you might say, well, you should deal with yourself last. But I felt like I really had to deal with my own grief first so that I could just be an operator. And so like once that was out of the way and I was like, you know, I'm not expecting anything out of this deal for myself. Now I just need to do the right things and, and run a really clean shutdown process. That was actually super liberating. Um, the only challenge is then it's like you just kind of are a mercenary because you're just like, I need to do the things. Like I need to do the steps to complete this process. Um, so that was like a big one was, and how did I do that? I don't, I kind of just decided, like, I think the honorable thing here would be to, to land the plane, which I think is the metaphor we like to use in in startups. And I'm not sure I can do that if I'm like angry Mm. all the time. Yeah. So I'm going to have to let that go. And I, you know, not just for me, but you know, between my husband and I, we owned a huge portion of the company. And so it was just like, okay, well, we got to let that dream die, right? That dream that we're going to make a lot of money off this. Um, and I think, in startups, we don't talk about that. I think actually it's a huge issue. We don't talk about money more because it's not that I, you know, every day was like counting the beans, trying to figure out how much money Mattermark was going to make for my personal net worth, but you don't go into it not wanting to get something. And so you have to kind of re-rationalize it at the end and say, well, what did I learn? Like, who am I? Am I a better person? Did I grow? And you have to kind of retake inventory, especially when there's no money in the deal. Cause you kind of have to, I don't know. It's like, it's an interesting thing. Um, that I wish I had spent a little more time at each financing or at each kind of major milestone, just checking in on myself a little bit more so that I wouldn't have had so much processing to do at the end. Mm. Um, Cause there are a lot of like unspoken things I was feeling about it. Like just, wow. Like, you know, could I, should I have you know had a job for the past seven years and just been paid market salary, things like that. Like you just have to come to terms with like, yeah. okay, I, you know, I got a couple, I've probably made a few million dollars less than I could have made in my career over the past 10 years. And, look at the upside to me. And, and that's the, that's the trade. So anyway, long winded, but had to cope with my own, you know, feelings about change first. And then the next thing was we had to do layoffs. We did, um, I think three rounds altogether. Um, and I think, you know, you never know for sure as you're doing these layoffs, whether that's like cutting deep enough or not, and whether you're going to turn the ship around or not. So I think coping with, unhappy people whose expectations are probably, um, you know, dashed a bit. They've joined a startup. And I think no matter what you say, people's expectations are often very, very high, especially if they're really young and inexperienced, or maybe it's their first startup that they've worked at. 
So just a lot of um, disillusionment and just being around people who are just not very happy with you. Um, who, of course, you worked to recruit and you convinced to join you and you think are amazing. And so it's like the people yeah. you most would like to have admire you. And in that moment, honestly, they don't usually. Yeah. I mean, they might, they might admire how you handled it in the end or you might come to terms. But in the moment, it's like you're letting everybody down. That's kind of how I felt. It was like I'm letting myself down, letting my co-founders down letting down the employees, letting down the investors, letting down all my the people who've been rooting for me. You said, you know, you've been a fan of mine for a long time. You didn't let me down. But that's the thing. It's like, you just, you start thinking that way yeah. and it's very interesting. And in the so moment, you can't help it. In the moment. Way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so then you don't know the difference. You don't know the difference between who you're actually letting down. And, and so actually when people like, thank you for saying that, and it means a lot to me. And my investors also said similar things like, look, this sucks. We wish it had turned out differently, but it's okay. Like you didn't let us down. You're a good person. Like that actually was incredibly powerful. The people who said Absolutely. those things. Um, it's and for hard. anybody they're listening, like tell founders those things, if you get the opportunity, cause they're going to assume that like, it's kind of that there's a funny song. Everybody hates me. I think it's chain smokers. Anyway, go walk into the club. Everybody hates me. That's kind of how it feels. <laughs> I was just, uh, as you're telling us, I was kind of envisioning you walking back into the office, you know, every morning, you know, you got to, get dressed and feel good about yourself and have your self-esteem. And, uh, and then meanwhile, you have the feelings you just described and you try to walk through an office where you're navigating people who, you know, maybe they got the, maybe they let go that day. Maybe they let go, you know, weeks from now, but they're on their way out and they know it, or they know that things are changing and you're just sort of like trying to be invisible. Yeah. But you can't be invisible. That's the thing. Like, I mean, Literally at the end, we were in a WeWork office where you like there was no invisible. There was no way to be invisible. We're like in this tiny seven-person office suite with no you know walls or anything. You're just like you. You kind of just. I feel like it's what you're training for. Like it, on the downside case, it's like you're training to be strong enough to do that part of the process and to walk in and and keep telling people the truth and keep telling them what they can be hopeful for, what they can expect, or what they can't. I mean, and to keep you know basically running the company. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a desire to be invisible, but, and, you know, yeah, I probably took some longer lunches and a lot more walks and a lot more one-on-ones with, you know, the people who are still there who were like my confidants. Um, but yeah, you have to keep going because we still had customers. Like, I mean, we were still selling, we were still closing new business. Um, we were still, you know, so shipping software. We shipped software up until like a few days before the close date. And we eventually decided like we probably should stop deploying because, if we break something now, this could be really bad, but you know, yeah, you have to keep running the company. Can we go back to, um, just for clarity, not so much to go through the details, but, uh, for clarity. So when you say go down to zero to nothing, does that mean that you walked away with no money? Yep. I walked away with a job and I got relocated to Denver. So that's awesome. But yeah. So the reason why I go back to that is cause I, you know, I think about we're here in the United States, both you and I, and so mm -hmm. this is sort of like localized to here at least and maybe similar in other areas, but I can only speak from experience here is that I feel like it's so freaking hard to build and run a business. And sometimes you're like, is it worth it? And I think that's kind of what you talked about. You scrutinized, hey, I could have just had a job and got paid market salary and maybe made a couple more, more million dollars. And you kind of reflected on which would have been better or worse to some degree. I just think like man, it is just so hard. So don't. I don't know how to go in. I just want to say that because that's just how I yeah. feel in this moment. Like it is hard and you sacrifice and you may make just as much as you may have somewhere else. But you know what? In the in the words of Gary Vaynerchuk, you may be happier doing what you're passionate about than doing something that you're not for somebody else. 
I think he's right. I mean, I think the thing you can never take back is time. Yeah. Like, I'm so glad that I spent the time this way, but I also feel like I didn't spend a minute. I didn't want to. When I, when we decided to sell the company, I feel like that was the, that was the way of getting paid was saying, I'm not going to spend two or three years more than what I want to spend on this. Um, If I had done that, I think, and then walked away with nothing, I think that would have been the real shame. But I think, you know, where I ended up and why I said, like, I think what I would look at it as is a proper recognition of reality is like, I think we kind of got to this sweet spot where I don't think I wasted time. Like, I don't regret spending any of it, but I do think there was a line coming up that, you know, and I don't know what would have happened past that point. Like, what would happen to my motivation, to my mental health? I, I don't even know if we would have gotten a deal done at all. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's uh, probably, you know, not talked about enough. I think a lot of founders don't walk away with anything more than a job offer. And, you know, um, there's kind of a positive press engine around acquisitions, which obviously we didn't uh, end up tapping into. Um, that is a provides a, you know, a, a cover story or, you know, kind of a different kind of payment, like a reputational payment. And I think that's great. I think that's fine. And that's a good reason to do acquisitions. But yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate, you know, I, I have like a pretty low um, responsibility life. Like I don't have a mortgage. I don't have kids. Like, so for me, this is not really a big deal, but I can totally imagine, you know, people in other situations where like my outcome versus the amount of time I spent, like, I don't know, maybe the math goes a different way. Yeah. And I think that we don't talk about it. And it's like, well, if we don't talk about it, people don't know what's normal and what's not normal. You know, I have founders calling me saying, Hey, I want to sell my company the way you did. I'm like, let me make sure you know what I did so that you can decide it's what right. you want. And like, if you, if you still just want to get out, I'll help you uh, think through that. Or I can, you know, kind of walk you through my process, but you need to know that like, I don't have advice for you on how to get your $10 million. So Uh, uh, some other founder would probably be a better person to talk to for that part. Well, now you could just link them to the show first and say, listen to this and then come back to me and see if you feel the same way. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the, the thing too, is like, you don't know going into the process of selling your company, what you're going to get. Um, and M and A is fascinating. Actually, I actually really enjoyed running the process. Um, I'm sad I didn't, you know, have a better outcome. But I think learned quite a bit about how big companies value small startups and how they think about buying them. And just don't, you know, you don't have very much leverage. It's very hard to create a bidding situation, an auction. It's very hard to set a price when you're talking about a company like Madam Mark was doing roughly three million dollars of recurring revenue uh, annually. Um, like. Yeah, the valuations you're getting in your fundraising have absolutely nothing to do with what a blue chip public company wants to pay for innovation. Yeah. That's uh, pretty fascinating. I mean, it, especially kind of knowing some of your history, um, it's got to be fun to be, you know, it's it's sad that it was your company, but in the moment of like doing the deal, those are fun things to actually execute. Like, mm-hmm. you know, negotiating and like, you know, cutting the, you know, setting the, the terms and you know, talking to certain people or whatever and, and evaluating certain things like that's actually kind of fun stuff. I kind of like, oh, I I, I've never it. done it, but I've, I can imagine cause I do similar things in other ways on smaller scales that, you know, if I, you know, multiplied them, they'd be similar to that, to that. It just, to me, it's, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that kind of process to, to just make deals happen. And those are fun. I, I enjoy fun. sales. I, I would definitely say like, for founders, if you're thinking of shutting your company down, you might as well try to sell it just to learn something about what that looks like. Because yeah. there were so many things I didn't know about that. That was kind of like closing the loop for me on my startup knowledge journey. I mean, I'm sure there's tons more for me to learn, but it was a major piece I didn't know. You know I had never seen a, a term sheet 
for buying my company before. I had never read the terms and, and I never really like, kind of, there's so many other things. And, and actually, I think next time around, if I do another startup, when I do another, probably when I do another startup, um, you know, some of the things that matter at the end are things that are good to be working on the whole time. Um, and so it kind of gave me a little more insight into like, cool, if I want to mitigate some risk and make my company more viable next time around, there's some things I could have done, you know, that would have potentially increased the value or just made it easier to do a deal or given me more leverage. And it's nice to know what those are now. You linked out to, his name's Ryan Callback. I wasn't familiar with him until you linked out to this. Some call them tweet storms. I'm just going to call it a thread. I think it's just a thread, a self-conversation essentially of like his position as a CEO and essentially talking about the health of, you know, how he looks at his current position. He, he shares like how he's tired and he explains how it's not a often enough a conversation happen in the public to to allow other entrepreneurs or other CEOs to sort of like have a place to voice their their feelings. Well you link to you link to the one I think that is kind of relevant to you now, which in your words you say this whole thread speaks to so many of my own thoughts about being a CEO, but unwinding this one is probably the biggest challenge of my life since selling Mattermark. And the the tweet said I feel tired mentally and physically constantly. I sleep less uh less well than I ever have in my life and I'm almost never able to catch up on sleep, not because I'm so busy, but because my mind races and refuses to rest. This has been my reality for six years. So why did you link to that? What was that about? What spoke to you about that? I don't know. It just resonates that feeling of your mind racing and you're like, you're not doing anything productive necessarily. You're just laying in bed trying to sleep, but your whole being is oriented around trying to like kind of predict the future or like play out scenarios. And, and I think sometimes it's easy to just kind of get into this almost like manic or kind of just cyclical way of thinking. Um, and I thought that I like was rested at the end of this process just because I basically decided once we decided to sell, I was like, I need to like basically take better care of myself starting right now just so that I can get through this process. And then I found like a whole nother level of like energy after I, after I like, wrapped up the transition uh, of the company and, and was actually just completely free of the schedule, free of the clock, you know, all of that. Um, it's just like this feeling of, oh my gosh, like I forgot what this feels like to just actually be rested. And I kind of was telling everybody, oh, I'm fine. I'm rested now. I'm sleeping eight hours a night. But like there's a big difference between eight hours of like quality sleep and eight hours that are punctuated by like waking up and tossing and turning three or four times. And it's just like, I just think the sleep thing I mean, they say sleep deprivation has like tons of interesting mental impairments it creates for you as just as a person functioning in the world. And, you know, you see this with new parents, for example. I think startup CEOs, probably many of them are suffering from a lot of the same impairments. And then you're at being asked to make decisions, like really difficult decisions, that complex ones about money and people. And um, I just really can relate to like how that is there's a lot of layers of that to unwind as you start to recover from that amount of stress. Ryan also mentions loneliness. Have you ever experienced loneliness as a CEO? I'm just trying to like oh, yeah. dig into some of the, the CEO journey, you know, like day-to-day grind of being a CEO, like what it feels like. I mean, sure. You got some great days. You feel on top of the world because you did a great deal or you got a new, you know, sometimes new- those are the loneliest though. Really? So yeah, because you, you know, at least for me, I think sometimes it's like, well, who, who should I be sharing this with? Um, you know, because it's kind of a, a, a light side and a dark side to everything. It's like, say you close a really amazing deal. In my case, I'm also co-founders with my husband. So maybe we're on a date and we've kind of agreed not to talk about work. 
So this is the most important thing that's happened to me maybe this week or this month, but I'm trying really hard to be a good wife and to live up to our agreement. So we don't break, so we don't talk about it. There's kind of a loneliness in that, or, um, you know, you, you got investors and you don't want them to doubt you and you're feeling uncertain, but you're like trying to figure out, do I let something play out a little longer or do I look for advice now? And you maybe decide I got to let it play out a little more. I don't want them to feel like I'm jerking the wheel. So you don't bring it up. And like, that's lonely. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the loneliness comes from maybe good decisions, but I mean, honoring other agreements or just that sense of like, Hey, no one can totally, no one else has a mirror of my brain. Um, there's not someone I can necessarily always confide in who would understand all the context that I would need to like share either a a win or a loss. Um, and then, you know, like think a CEO, you're like, well, I'm probably pretty annoying if I just am going to my team, especially the people who are reporting either to me or up to me through other managers. Uh, if you express vulnerability or doubt or questioning as much as we want to think that people are capable of handling that, it gets misread a lot. And so you can't necessarily confide in, you know, very many people on your team um, without there being consequences. Now I've tried it both ways. I've tried doing it anyway and just saying like, we're going to be an open, transparent, vulnerable company and there's consequences, good and bad there. I've tried being really kind of cards held close to the chest. And I think that's also got consequences. So there's this sense of a constant battle to figure out who should I be sharing this seemingly important thing with, uh, or do I just keep it to myself? And I think sometimes when you're exhausted about with that decision, it's easier to just not share. And so that's where the loneliness I, for me has come from. I'm similar with my wife. We, you know, I'll tell her I had a great day and she's like, you want to go and have dinner to, you know, to celebrate. And we may talk about the details of something, but I'm like, you, yeah, I just, I want to share it, but at the same time, I just want to spend time with my wife, my son, and I don't want to, and I, I do that because it's like, well, I don't want to burden them with, you know, my stuff all the time. You know, it's our stuff, yeah. but it's, it's really like my stuff. It's work related. I just rather just like not have to deal with it. And that can kind of definitely be lonely. And then mm-hmm. maybe in your position, it's, it's like, who can I confide in and share with and, and remain, have trust intact they can understand enough of what I'm doing to trust why I made that choice and share that with them. And then I was thinking, you know, therapists, you know, people undervalue the the need for mental health therapy. You know, it's, there's no, there's no uh, shame in, in sitting down with somebody and actually talking through like, Hey, this is how I'm feeling this week. Have you explored that at all? Is that something that you've done before? Yeah. So I had a CEO coach uh, for, I want to say four years, pretty much from the time we raised our series a onward. Um, so that was massively helpful. I think we met for a while. I think we met weekly and then eventually kind of every other week as I started to kind of have more stability. And I think we were always able to text and call each other. So that was really helpful. Um, I think there, and then we also have a marriage counselor, which I think is massively important just in general, but I think for married co-founders, it's just like, you got to have that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm a huge fan of therapy. I'm a huge fan of peer therapy, like mentorship too, especially if you're able to find some people who maybe like, so I worked with a company called reboot.io and they have a kind of CEO community. And so it's nice because they're working with similar coaches or similar coaching styles. So we can kind of support each other's coaching um, as well. Um, yeah. I love that stuff. I, and actually kind of missing it in a way, like realizing <laughs> now I'm like, Oh man, like that was really great. Like maybe I'll uh, take up, you know, with a life coach or just someone else. It's nice to have a, a way to externalize those thoughts. Um, so yeah, huge fan. 
love it. I think that it's too bad there's any stigma around therapy. I think that's going away. But um, anybody listening, I think it's like, go get a initial coaching session. And also, if you don't like to coach, just date around until you find a coach that fits with your personality. I think I had to go through like, in my career, I think I've had like four or five coaches until I found like the one that I stuck with for years and years. Wow. I've been given that advice to, to get what you just mentioned, but I don't know what the first step is. And I live in Houston, so I'm not like in the Valley to have access to maybe the next startup that's just doing it as a business or as a service. Um, How do you, what advice do you have on finding that kind of person? Well, I mean, I'll just straight up shill for Reboot because I think they're amazing. But I think that you know, asking other CEOs, like asking me, and I can certainly um, provide some suggestions. I would just say, who are you working with? Because a lot of these coaches work remotely over Skype. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think, you know, I don't think you should look at being in Houston or being in, you know, Europe as a reason why you can't wow. get access to someone here. Um, and the same thing is like, there's coaches everywhere. I think it's it's probably just a very much a referral-based thing. Um so I would start there and like, um, I'd say there's more founders working with coaches and therapists than like maybe people want to admit. So I think the high, high chance, and I think I, you know, I don't know if it's appropriate to share more about Reboot on, on our, on our their show now, but I could certainly send you some information about them and they also have a great network of referrals. So I think it's just kind of starting to ask one person and then bite or webbing out from there. Yeah. I think it's, it's uh, interesting. I never really considered to flatten the world in that case. Like I always thought like, oh, that that's the kind of relationship that should be face-to-face and I've got to look locally or something. I do think it is nice if it can be in person, but I think it's like, I think for founders, and I'm not in the Bay Area right now, I think for founders outside the Bay Area, um, if you feel like you want to be talking to the same people that like the Bay Area startups are talking to for whatever reason, I think they're actually much more available than ever because CEOs are traveling all over at the place. So these people have to set up their businesses to serve CEOs who are on the road 50, 75% of the time. So what's the difference between a CEO who's based in San Francisco, but on the road versus you who's in Helsinki, who needs a startup coach? You should be totally be rocking out in Helsinki right now, by the way. Seems like a good time of year to go. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's nice there. Um, <laughs> I do have some travel planned. Uh, it's, I think it's Portland in July, Denver Ooh, nice. in, uh, in August. That's always fun. You're coming to Denver at like the best time. Yeah. Yeah. It's usually in July we go there, but uh, like second week in July, which is always also a great time. And it's not a good time here in Houston. In August, it is like at least 100 degrees. Oh, my gosh. And uh, it's we're known to be humid. Uh, it's 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 just. It's not good. It's not a good month to visit Houston. Don't ever come here in August, and <laughs> early September. It's just not the best months, but it's a great, great place. Otherwise. This is the worst time frame, but, um, you know, closing things out, let's, let's talk about, um, maybe I sometimes ask people the super secret question, which is like, what's next for you. But I feel like you're still discovering that. And it's just maybe too early to ask you that unless you have a great answer. Um, but I would say like maybe some, we've shared lots of advice, but what's someone who's, who's a CEO now listen to this, someone who's dealing with, you know, either successes or a- any portions of your story that we've just shared through Mattermark and the transition for you, what advice can you give someone that um, is questioning whether they should sell their company or continue or how to keep leading and, and, you know, sort of portraying a good face and all this good stuff while things may not be the best behind the scenes. How do you, what kind of advice do you give to someone like that? Man, so many things. I mean, first I just want to give that person a hug. 
um, because it's pretty stressful. I think something that really helped me, I made this spreadsheet. I people who are listening who've like followed me know I like love spreadsheets. Yes, you do. <laughs> um, I made this spreadsheet that I think really helped me. Basically, it lays out what are all the possible things that could happen, like big picture, like sell the company, you know, turn this thing around, go into this new market, whatever the, the, the buckets are. And then what would the impact be on the core constituents that I care about? So, you know, my employees, my investors, myself, maybe my co-founders, my family, whatever you feel are the core constituencies that you're responsible for representing. Um, I hope it's the customers in there. If not, the customers should definitely be in there. And I just kind of filled in the grid and I started to look at like, what would just be deal breakers? Like what things am I not willing to do? Like maybe one of the scenarios is just so bad for my investors that it's like, it's not acceptable or it's so bad for my family that it's not acceptable. Um, and then I think from there kind of getting a sort of staggering sense of like, what are the outcomes or the scenarios that I'd be okay with? And like, how okay would I be? And the reason to do this is I think this is actually where there's a lot of fuzzy thinking. Um, it's sort of like, I feel like it's not okay or it's not kosher to, to talk about selling your company. And I think that's why this conversation with my co-founder and husband about like what would life be like afterwards was so powerful. Um, and so I would just say, rather than waiting till you're in a really bad spot, laying these scenarios out now and maybe seeing new scenarios you weren't considering because you just took the time to think about it, um, is very powerful. Lets you feel like you're in control and that you're choosing what's happening. Even if maybe your choices get crappier and crappier as things don't work, you're still actively choosing and maybe you're adding new options to the list. I ended up making that and I ended up sharing it with my investors when we got to a certain point and they actually pointed out some other, you know, deal breakers or possible scenarios or twists on the things that I had put there. Um, and I think just being, giving yourself permission to play out all the possibilities and the privacy of your own spreadsheet uh, is something I just think for me, made me feel like, hey, I don't like this, but at least I'm pretty much seeing the full picture as well as I possibly can. Um, and that's for tactical, but I feel like I wish somebody had maybe encouraged me to do it 18 months even earlier because I probably had more freedom than I realized to change the, the way things were playing out. That's interesting that that ending there is like, uh, because, you know, you can regret that obviously. And now it's a lesson learned. But, you know, in the moment, had you been advised earlier or just known earlier, maybe things could be different. Obviously, you can't sit there and him and haul over it. That's the whole point of who moved my cheese. You, you got to move yeah. on, but things could be different. I mean, all we're gaining and doing this is we're getting better and better at making good decisions. So yeah. I just feel like if we could if we could come away with, with that skill improving, then I think that's that's a win, even though in my case, you know, there's not a monetary win. So I feel like if that's the thing that I got from this whole thing, then I would love to get to share that. Well, in the in closing, I, I had no idea this was your first time doing any sort of interview like this. I, I'm so thankful that you said yes to come on because I didn't know that. I just knew when I restarted Founders Talk, I definitely wanted to talk to you. Um, I didn't know when in your life that would be or circumstances and it just happens to be after, uh, you know, the acquisition and there's a, a different story to tell, but, um, I'm so thankful that you said yes and had the, you know, the ability to come back and, and talk through things without, you know, I don't know, just it being bad for you, I guess. I'm really thankful that you're in a good place and the company went well and, and you're on a happy path and you got so much wisdom to share. So I'm thankful that you came on and did that. 
Thank you. It was fun. I think I realized some things I had not had thought, but I hadn't said out loud before. So really, really enjoyed it. What's interesting is whenever you say things out loud, they become true. And until you say them out loud, it's like, was that really true? Did I just think it? Did I say it? And like, once you say That's it, right. once it's like vocalized and you vocalize and you admitted it, whether it's good or bad, it's like, now it's true. Now it's real. There you go. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Danielle. Thank you. All right, thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Founders Talk. Do me a favor. If you enjoyed this show or you received any value from the stories being shared, share it with a friend. Head to iTunes to rate and review the show. If you know how to tweet a link, tweet a link. Do whatever you can and whatever you're comfortable doing to share this show with a friend. Of course, thank you to our sponsors, Hired and Rollbar. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we catch our ears before our users do here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com slash Changelog. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Check them out and support this show. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.